0: Production. Hello, a life of greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos, and behind the scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Leanne Moriarty is one of Australia's most acclaimed authors and the only Australian to feature as number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Some of her books include Big Little Lies, Nine Perfect Strangers, and The Husband's Secret. With worldwide sales of over 20 million copies, her words bring life's intrinsic quirkiness and whimsy into relief right alongside life's deep rooted seriousness. As a storyteller, she's contemplative and inspired by the stuff of daily life, schoolyard scandal to ordinary backyard barbecues. This conversation traverses many realms. It's about the nature of creativity and what drives Leanne, her philosophies on work, passion, service, and the incredible power of her words to shape culture.
1: Sometimes people will talk about really difficult times in their lives where my books helped get them through. Because they're easy reads, maybe they were at the hospital with a sick relative and things like that. So it's really personal and special.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Leanne Moriarty's newest book is Apples Never Fall, a thrilling domestic drama. More than anything, this conversation shares her perspective on career longevity, her evolution as a writer, how she approaches unlocking her creativity and the purpose that lives beneath it all. May her words inspire you to follow your own dream lean into your imagination and never stop learning. Leanne, you are one of Australia's most well-known and adored authors. Tell me, how did your childhood shape who you are today?
1: Uh, Well, I think I was shaped, first of all, by being the eldest of six children. Uh, So growing up as part of a big family, I do sometimes wonder if that gave me an interest in just in different personalities so in the fact that we were all so different even though there were we obviously had the same upbringing and the same parents but we all had such different identities so i think perhaps as a result of that i'm interested in writing from multiple perspectives so that's one side of it from from how i write there's also the fact that i grew up in a household where we were encouraged to read, uh, not in an academic way. uh, So it wasn't, you know, where we are all sitting around reading books and having uh, highbrow discussions just in the fact that my mother always took us to the library. I think it took a long time for me to realise not everybody was as lucky as that, that Mm. books were just a natural part of of life for us. And also my dad, when he discovered that uh, my sister and myself, that we used to like to write stories, he then encouraged us by commissioning us to write stories for him. So he'd pay a dollar for an exercise book filled with words. And then he had a roulette wheel, so he'd, he'd win back all the money. So we'd play roulette against us and win back all the money he'd paid us.
0: Did you like reading from when you were young? Did it come from an environment at school where you were good at it, how did that love for reading begin? Because I see I, my son is eight and he is obsessed with reading and he is just a moth to a flame to the extent where we have to say, do not take the book into the bathroom. Do not take the book when you're eating because he won't eat. He'll like literally like have one spoonful and then be face first in the book. It's such a beautiful thing and I don't see it in my daughter. So I wonder... Did you feel like it, it was an innate thing just having this love for reading and writing?
1: I think so. I do wonder how it would have been if there were as many distractions as my own children face. So that's interesting that you say that about your son. So he's obviously got those distractions but he's still got that love of, yes. of reading. So, So I don't know. I can't tell what I would have been like if I if I had TikTok there to distract me. But I did, uh, and as I say, my mother took us to the library and there were books around, but mum and dad were far too busy. They weren't reading. I didn't see them reading at all. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I feel like it was a name. But I often think about would I have been distracted by TikTok is that even now I have to make an effort sometimes to put down the phone because it's so addictive, yeah. especially in current times where you can get caught up with the, the doom scrolling. Uh, and then I, that's when I think, well, what hope have children got if even I who would love to read, who it's my greatest pleasure, if I'm finding I have to say to myself, put it down.
0: Yes, I know it is very hard. When you were young, what were the authors that you loved that really inspired you? Uh, so
1: definitely Ina Blighton. Oh, um, my favourite. Yes. You can definitely see her influence in my early um, writing. So my children, the characters in my books sound suspiciously English. Um, so they have, you know, English accents. They're saying, what a jolly good idea and things like that. So, um, yep, she was a big one. Mm. Uh, Mary Poppins books. I love the Mary Poppins books. P.L. Travers, is that right? Um, anyway, I love the Mary Poppins books. And, of course, the Narnia series. And then I'm not sure I remember that I was really quite uh, embarrassingly grown up before it occurred to me that I should notice who wrote the books that I liked, um, that I would just grab a stack of books and then just read whatever uh, came to me rather than thinking if, if I actually like a particular author. I should look for that author's books. So now as an author, I disapprove of that thinking, obviously.
0: Your books have the most wonderful characters and I think you're very much known for these amazing characters that you put in all your books. When we're young, people's imagination flies and you come up with the most magical things and there's no, you know, you don't know too much about the world to stop your imagination. I wonder how that continued for you, that your imagination is so rich that you're able to really bring these characters to life in all your books? I
1: do notice in myself that when I'm writing as a grown-up, that I'm always trying to achieve what I used to achieve instantly as a child. So when I sat down to write I would just write for the love of writing and I didn't analyse it too much so I didn't, I loved it in the same way that I loved riding my bike so now I'll ride a bike, now I'll write a story and I would just instantly lose myself in the story whereas now there are thousands of voices in my head each time I sit down to write and critical voices and and look at you, you're an author, this is your job, um, and what genre are you writing? So I always have to keep writing until I finally lose that sense of self and write the way I instantly wrote as a 10-year-old.
0: Do you think that is also an ego thing, putting the ego to the side to be able to just get into that flow?
1: Yeah, it's just losing your sense of self and yeah. Um, uh, yeah, flow. You know, athletes call it getting into the zone, and I think the, that creative um, flow is wonderful when you reach that. And the only way to get there for me is by writing, um, just writing anything. Just thinking to myself, doesn't matter if it's any good. Just write anything for the next few, uh, however many minutes. I've got. Yeah, I've got this beautiful um, egg timer that. Oh, yeah. uh, a friend gave me. And so, and I think it goes for 30 minutes. And if you turn that over, uh, then I think to myself, so you must write for the next 30 minutes without thinking anything. And then often then I finally lose. Yep,
0: yeah. lose. we. I've interviewed a few of the leaders uh, who speak about flow on the podcast before a lot of Americans, and they talk a lot right. about being in that that frame of mind, and having make sure all distractions are put to the side. So, do you mm-hmm. turn your phone off or put it on silent and take off take off email notifications? Because they talk a lot about that.
1: Yes. So, oh, so maybe you can tell. Me. So, this is what I have, um, I have, uh, I've always had that program Freedom, which stops internet access, and I always believed that Freedom also stopped. Um, email from coming through, but apparently it doesn't. So I just believed that for years <laughs> and then somehow something happened where I thought actually email is coming through. So now I stop. Um, so I've kept trying to work out how, do, how can I now, I don't want my email no. to come through. As soon as I knew that email was coming through, then I would um, go and check email. Um, but I loved Freedom because... Uh, it was a way almost of programming myself. So I think, uh, okay, I'm going to write the three, whatever time amount i put in. <clears throat> and then I'd think, I was like, now you're programmed to write for this amount yes. of time.
0: Well, it is, and, it's a, it's, and they say that, when you're in that state, all time just dissipates. So you don't actually know, well, you've got the timer there, but you don't know really how long you've 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 been writing for because you're in that flow state where you're just absolutely lost in writing yeah. about whatever you do. And I they say for people who are doing work that you should always do your hardest task first. That's also a way of getting into flow by doing that and achieving that and then kind of going into the smaller ones. But it is I mean it's like you said, a lot of athletes do it. A, a lot of, really, they really talk about it. it's like this thing going into it, into a flow state, and how much you really can achieve in it. And I would say authors, especially someone like you, would be yeah. That flow state would help you achieve so much that you would find yourself in.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that they say do the hardest thing because I find I need to do something easy mm. so that's why i uh, when i sit down at my manuscript <clears throat> i could never just start start writing a difficult scene what i tend to do is write whatever edit what i've written the day before or something that's so because that's more pleasurable and then i'm yeah. just warming up so for me it's like if i was thinking of um you know if i do a spin class yeah. Kind of warm up. At, at yes, and it's horrible at the beginning, and I hate it. And then, you know, when you finally warm up, and then actually, that's when I do start coming up with ideas for for my work. Once mm. something,
0: something clicks in, well, clearly you've achieved a lot. So you keep doing what what, <laughs> what works for you. <laughs> you've said that you don't actually plan your books. So do you just sit down and? Think I'm gonna like it's you know I've got the next year I, I've heard you say that you spend about a year or so writing a book. You've got a year. Do you have any idea about what you're going to write? How does it begin?
1: It just begins with the premise. So, for example, with apples never fall, which is the newest book. Then I had this premise of what: so the woman goes missing, and the the adult children and considering the terrible possibility that their father may have killed their mother. So I had that premise, but I didn't know I didn't know where she was. I didn't know if the um, father had actually murdered the mother. I didn't know the motivations. It's just the, the premise. And so it's a fun way to write because when I sit down at my desk each day, I think I wonder what's going to happen today. But it's also a scary way to write because then I think, I hope something happens today. Um, so I never want to give the impression that I just sit there and it all just flows out yeah. in this because I'm so good at achieving a sense of flow that it just you know all comes in a in an organised fashion. It doesn't. I just prefer to you know. So I have a scene. So for example, even with uh, what else? Forgot a woman loses ten years of her memory. So all I'm starting with is that very first scene and as I'm writing it that's helping me get to know the characters and I'm considering and discarding possible ideas that maybe this will happen maybe that will happen and so I'm working it out as I go along so I always have a separate document called things I need to fix because as I've worked out what's going to happen obviously I'm going to now need to go back and change earlier chapters Even once I've got to know my characters and I'm thinking, well, now I know she wouldn't say this or I've got little speech patterns as I've developed her, then I'll go back and put those in. I'll put in red herrings, I'll signpost certain things and some things just happen to flow naturally. So I'll put something as part of the story and then afterwards I'll think, oh, that could actually mean something else. And that's good when that happens Mm. as opposed to having to go back and sort of, shove in a jigsaw piece to make it work.
0: Do you base a lot of the characters on people in your life or people that you meet? I will fully confess to
1: to helping myself to certain attributes of um, people and sometimes I even start a character with one other person's attributes. So, for example, with the character of Madeline in Big Little Lies, I can always remember writing... Perpetually outraged, like so and so, and shimmery, sparkly girl, like so and so, and so I had those two attributes, and then I started writing her. But then something happens where she becomes completely herself. So Madeline is, in fact, nothing like the perpetually outraged friend or the shimmery friend. She's her own person, mm-hmm. but it just help. It's a starting point to have an attribute.
0: That is so unbelievably interesting. Do you have a vision of what they look like when you're writing?
1: I think I'm, and I think sometimes I've been criticised that I don't describe my character's looks enough. I do sometimes. So, for example, with this new book, that Joy Delaney, I can remember going for a walk and a woman walked by me and I thought, oh, there you are, Joy. She looked exactly the way I <laughs> described her. So I think, but that was more, that was unusual because I, I think I think more about their personalities yeah. than, than how they look. It doesn't really matter to me all that much whether they have, so, you know, Madeline in Big Little Eyes had dark hair. Yes. Reese had the blonde hair. That, you know, wasn't something that was crucial to me.
0: Have you ever gone and told a person afterwards, this is who I actually based a lot of this character on you? Uh,
1: (laughs) The the shimmery girl, no, she was the, no, because I did take, actually she, if I take a little story that somebody's told me, I will um, always ask, is it okay, if if there's some just tiny little anecdote from their
0: their
1: life and people love that.
0: I was going to say, people would love that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes, if it's a little story, not normally. No, no. I actually don't take. I don't tell an attrib- a particular attribute. I've never told that. It's if I take a little. Yes. Yeah. A little anecdote.
0: You obviously have a lot of New York Times bestsellers, but what I would like to know is your first New York Times bestseller was Husband's Secret. How did that feel to be on that? That's such a prestigious list.
1: Well, it was just a career highlight. It was just one of the special moments of my life. And it wasn't really something, it wasn't a goal that I had. I was really just happy to be published. Um, And it's not, I never think too much about the industry, which I think is a, I think it's a good thing that I'm just focused on the story and I felt really happy that I was allowed as my job to sit at my desk and write stories. But it was a huge thrill then when I got the news and I can always remember... I'd stopped and taken a phone call. Uh, I was just about to go to have breakfast with my little girl. I dropped my little boy off at school and I got the call that it had hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I can remember carrying her into the cafe and whispering into her ear uh, Mummy just became a New York Times bestseller. And so it just feels it feels magical, really. But, but my son, he's seen this TikTok video that says... Um, Why is everybody, every book a New York Times bestseller? So he makes fun of me and says nothing that special about being a New York Times bestseller. It's so
0: funny you say that because when I do my introductions for the podcast, (laughs) the audio producer, I record them with him. He says... Sarah, have you ever interviewed someone who is not a New York Times bestseller? And I said, I interview the best in the world. I can't help it if they've all got New York Times bestsellers. So are dozens. <laughs> but it's so unbelievably prestigious. Do you have a feeling oh, this will be a New York Times bestseller when you finished? Or does it surprise you still? Um, no,
1: I don't have a feeling. Um, No, and I don't. And in a way, I really need to separate myself from all that because I think then I would get too caught up in thinking, you know, they liked certain things, the readers appreciated certain things, Mm. and I do. I mean, I do tend to sort of come back to familiar themes anyway, so it's not like I'm doing anything that different. But if I deliberately said now I'm going to do this, this and this because that's what worked before, having said that, yeah, you know, I'm just keep fact-checking myself. I do remember after The Husband's Secret came out, which took a darker, more suspenseful mm. turn than my previous books and I can remember my American editor saying to me I can't remember her exact words but it was something along the lines of you know readers seem to really appreciate that so she she was basically saying do that again (laughs) (laughs) and I guess I did I enjoyed the suspenseful turn so I can't really say uh you know I'm such an artist I'm doing whatever I want with each book I know readers enjoyed the fact that I took a a darker turn so I've I've kept I've kept with that so I, no, I don't know. It's really, it's so hard to be objective about your own work yeah. when I've finished it. I'm in a, in a state of agony, really, to think, will people, I don't know. Um, that's why I'm so nice. So I've got two sisters who are authors and as soon as we finish writing a manuscript, we send it to each other and our only job is to uh, say to each other within a, an amazingly short time, this is a masterpiece. This is the best thing you've ever written just because it's you you don't know it. You can't see it.
0: Well, that's an interesting topic talking about now criticism or I shouldn't say criticism, helpful advice. (laughs) (laughs) I know even with the podcast, I mean, I have a very tight unit of people that give me feedback that I trust and I'm open to hearing things from people here and there. But I also know that if you, you can get very overwhelmed with all these different people's opinions. So whose opinion do you take? For you, who do you lean on to give you feedback?
1: Well, really, so my two sisters and also because I've got different publishers in uh, Australia, US and UK, so I've got different editors. So I do feel like I've got enough people Ready to give me constructive criticism as part of the editorial process. Yeah. So they're the ones that I rely on the most. Yeah, and and it is always difficult the editorial process. So when you first get the editorial report, my first reaction is, um, no, I don't, I don't want anything. And then you've got to sort of think, you've got to let it sit with you for a bit, and then I, then I do really, I'm grateful for the editorial process. And then there's the next level of of readers, but I, I don't read reviews anymore. So when I first started writing, I used to, uh, it was part of my daily routine to check my Amazon reviews, but I haven't looked at Amazon now in years because little things just get stuck in your, in your head It's um, and it's that human nature that you'll remember the negative, yeah. you'll remember mm. one negative comment out of, however many good comments.
0: It's so true. It is such a wise thing. I think Olivia Newton-John had told me, Seth Godin has told me that they stopped reading reviews a long time ago because absolutely to your point, the negative ones are the ones that stay in your head and then Mm. your self-esteem gets kind of knocked a bit and it's a... It's not such a great thing. I mean, you know in yourself and you have the close people, like you said, around you and, and really that should be enough. And I'm sure you get a lot of emails or your publishers would be able to tell you all the beautiful emails that readers write yes. in about. Yeah,
1: I get the good I get the good comments really for which I'm not I won't get this time so much because when I go on tour and I meet readers mm. So it has really clarified for me. Actually, the pandemic, the the things that matter to me are the actual writing part, and then just the meeting, the meeting readers. Um, but yes, to the, the actual the actual reviews from critics, uh, it gets too caught in your head. So much so that I can remember sometimes thinking after reading a review, thinking, oh, well, thank goodness I don't have another book out for another two or three years. She can't hurt me again, uh, which is terrible it's to terrible. think I'm safe now because yeah. I haven't got anything and I can just go and go and write again.
0: And, you know, half the time these people sometimes are just trolls, like they probably even haven't read your book properly. It's just a negative comment based on nothing.
1: Yeah, or it is their their view and that's just, that's part of my job that I do have to accept that it's just mm. literally not possible to please everyone. So, for example, with the sort of books that I write, um, part of the difficulty that I had taken this suspenseful turn, but I'm not really writing pure suspense. So sometimes I think people pick it up, pick up my books thinking it's going to be a real page turn or a real thriller uh, and then they get impatient because I'm doing too much. You know, I'm delving into a particular character, which some of my readers love. That yeah. so, I it's no, I can't please the person who wants the page turner, as well as pleasing my readers who who love the um, yeah. the going off on detours on characters' backstories.
0: How did you come to that sense of peace, being able to not please everyone? No, I haven't. I haven't come. I'm just saying
1: that out loud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I knew <laughs> it. I don't think I'm there either, so I get it. <laughs> no, I accidentally saw because somebody put somebody put something on my author page, and they put it on today, saying, "I know some readers are saying it's a slow burn, but I love it." And of course, <laughs> in my head, all I can hear is slow burn. So as I'm saying that, I'm that's what I mean. She loved it. The ones who wanted to say it's a slow burn, I I can't please them. There's nothing I can do about it. There's no peace. I thought I had achieved it with this most recent book because I took longer to write it and I loved the process of writing it so much. And I remember actually listening to a podcast. I can't remember. He might have been an actor and he spoke so passionately saying something about how if you've given your heart to something, then criticism can't hurt you. And I thought that, I remember I had a moment where I thought, well, I have given my heart to this book, so criticism won't hurt me. And I thought momentarily that I'd achieved enlightenment um, and that I'd self actualized and it didn't matter anymore, but it didn't, no, it didn't last. <laughs> I, still, I still care. It I'd needs still, to be I'd your
0: still... mantra every morning when you wake up.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> it's, it's. I remember talking to Mark Manson and he was saying that after he, Went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. There was that depression that followed after that he writes about in his second book, and it was it was for him it was that high, and then it's well now what? Did you ever feel anything like that?
1: I think it was a bit different for me because it was my fifth novel that um, yeah that um, got there so. I, I think it would be really hard if your first novel has a huge success. I, I didn't have that. So in a way uh, I feel lucky that I had those books that were just going along, being what they call a mid lisp author, and so I knew I could, I knew I loved the actual writing of the books. So I, I didn't really mm. experience that.
0: You obviously have Big Little Lies and Nine Perfect Strangers, which have been adapted to on screen. And Big Little Lies just won so many Emmys. It was amazing. And Nine Perfect Strangers is on now. I'm watching it every week. I wish there was more than one episode. (laughs) I hate that I have to wait until every... I love it when Thursday rolls around. But I also find it like, damn, I think every single person that I know is watching that. How does it feel to achieve that to know that your books have then made it onto screen and having such amazing actors in them?
1: Oh, well, I just feel very lucky, really, that the adaptations were so wonderful and that uh, they both attracted such incredible casts. So, I think that's for me, that's just pure luck. And feels like a real perk of the job. So I know some authors are not as lucky as I've been in that I handed it over, but they kept me involved. Yes, so you're out.
0: the executive producer. I saw on Nine Perfect Strangers. Executive producer, yeah, but that's an honorary title. I oh, still okay it
1: over. Uh, so that's in recognition for my contribution, which is the book. It's not. Um, it doesn't mean that I was there yeah. saying. It stand over there. And I just, I'm just grateful for that. But for me, as I say, it's a perk of the job. Uh, It's just a real, and it's been pure fun, Mm. but that's all their talents that are coming into it. For me, still the end result is always the book. And that's between me and the reader. So that feels really personal. And I'm in charge of that of that world. Uh, so, you know, every single actor, for example, in Nine Perfect Strangers, every single one of them, they brought their own interpretation and their own talent to each character and that's incredible and they do, and it's a completely different art form. Um, but I still love when I'm in charge of my world and and I meet a reader who uh, they talk about things from their own experiences and why they loved the book or or things, you know, if they had some uh, times people would talk about really difficult times in their lives where my books helped get them through Mm -hmm. because they're easy reads. Maybe they were at the hospital with a sick relative and things like that. So it's really personal and special.
0: I was going to ask you, is there a letter or an email that you remember? Because I know I have a couple with the podcast that sticks out the most because of, of how someone said it changed their life?
1: Um, there oh, There's quite a few that stand out. I can remember the very first person who ever sent me a message, her name was Rebecca. I remember that because I considered naming my first child after because <laughs> I quite like the name Rebecca too. Um, so the very first person, but then there are people who've written to say after Big Little Lies, after reading the novel, one person said was this so so there's people who come up in the signing line at book events and I think one person came up and said something about that she showed her book to all of us showed my book to each of her friends and said this is me I want you to read the book so that um, that was her way of telling them this is what I've been going through so she'd got out of an abusive relationship so some people have written to say that they, from reading the book they recognised that they were in an abusive relationship and left because of it. And then there are people who, um, who are going through infertility so that um, what Alice forgot meant a lot to them. I remember a few people saying what Alice forgot is about a woman who loses 10 years of her memory so she thinks she's only about to turn 30, mm. really she's about to turn 40. And a lot of women who were in their early 40s wanted to tell me that they'd had really in-depth conversations with their partners because it made them really think about how have we changed over the last 10 years, so that was really special. There's a character in The Husband's Secret with a particular health condition which a woman wrote to me and said from reading my book she diagnosed her own daughter with this a health condition that she then it's an unusual syndrome, and she then took her and had a diagnosis. So that's incredible. incredible. So, so, so many, it's really, really special.
0: Did you ever think that you'd be changing people's lives?
1: No, and I know uh, it, it's purely set out to write a story, to just have a book at the end end of it. No, so it's incredible.
0: There must be such a sense of satisfaction because you're giving back in such a way that, I mean, you are being creative and you're just writing what comes to you. But when you know that you're actually changing people's lives and saving lives, Mm. I mean, what an incredible feeling that must be.
1: Yeah, it really was, yeah.
0: And going back to it being on screen, how much say do you have once a, once they start filming? Are you ever there or you, do you see the scripts before?
1: Or? I preferred to be quite hands-off. Yeah. So I always felt that if I, uh, if I started becoming too involved, I would hold on too tightly. Mm. Uh, and I always felt that adaptations should not be too faithful, that there are certain things that you need to change but that uh uh, I would naturally not want to change things. Uh, so I, I was, I've was been asked if I wanted to write the screenplay, but because I don't plan my books, because I don't know what's going to happen, to me there's no pleasure in writing an adaptation of my own work because I already know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so to me it just makes, I can think of nothing more boring than adapting my own work. So no, as I said that, the i've been so lucky because i've been kept involved but only from a you know do you want to see this do you want and i've got come along to visit the set so it's like being part of something without actually having to to yeah. do anything
0: how did nicole kidman get involved i mean firstly she's australian which must be really nice to have an aussie being such a big part of of both nine perfect strangers and big little lies how did that association with you come to fruition
1: I think the link is Bruna Papandrea, who is an Australian producer who was working with Reese Witherspoon at the time, and I think Bruna might have seen the manuscript for Big Little Lies uh, first, or she knew um, she knew somebody had seen it. Um, so I think, and Bruna was friends with Nicole, and worked with Nicole before, so as a result, Nicole and Reese together optioned um, Big Little Lies.
0: And now you have your new book, which is Apples Never Fall. Tell us a bit about that and what was the inspiration for writing that book?
1: Um, So Apples Never Fall is the story of Joy and Stan Delaney, who are retired tennis coaches, and what happens when Joy goes missing and her four adult children have to deal with the terrible possibility that their father may have murdered their mother. And I came to that. There are a few different little sparks. So one spark was, uh, like Joy in the book, I got some fancy headphones, some fancy wireless headphones from my husband as a gift and I got into podcasts a little bit late uh, and like most people I started listening to some true crime podcasts yeah. and I think that's where they, this premise of the missing the missing wife and how would you feel if you uh, people were believing it was your your father and then once I had that premise I was thinking well that it would be ideal if I then had So I've got four children because then they can have different reactions to this happening uh, and you can have factions forming. So that was one spark. Another spark, I remember reading an article about a young woman who knocked on the door of an elderly couple's house late at night and asked to be let in and there was a criminal case as a result of, of that. I'm not sure exactly what that incident was, but what stuck in my mind was just this knocking on the door and this elderly couple trying to do the right thing and they they let her in. So I had that as another spark. So I had no idea how those two things would come together. Uh, and the third thing was that I was having uh, what I was calling very self-indulgently a year of joy, which was Fortunately, it was 2019, not 2020, Mm. where I was giving myself a year off and I was thinking I wouldn't start a new novel just yet. I was thinking I'd just write for the pleasure of writing. Uh, And I asked my sister Jackie to send me a writing prompt and I thought I'd just write something, maybe a story or whatever came of it. And she sent me just a three or four-line prompt, which was about a bike lying on the grass underneath a tree with a few apples lying on the grass next to the bike and so that became the opening scene of the book because it turned out and from that prompt I didn't just write some little piece, I just ended up writing a novel. So it was good that The Year of Joy clarified that actually writing novels brings me joy and that's how I also came up with that character's name because I think I was originally calling the book The Year of Joy but uh, the main character's name is Joy.
0: What did you do in your year of joy?
1: I I didn't do much. I remember my husband and I saying, um, I feel like that was a practice year. I might need to try again. I was only just settling into it. We had some lovely holidays. I did a Scandinavian book tour and then a holiday with my family, which was so grateful that we did uh, because all the travelling stopped after Mm. that. So <laughs> I didn't, I, I thought I'd listen to music and read poetry and all that sort of thing. And I think really what it just did, because I had longer than usual to write my next book, it just allowed me to, it took the pressure off.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, because I was thinking if it doesn't, if this doesn't work, I can throw it away. Uh, and it really, I just loved, I loved writing. So really I, I just lived my normal life, really. <laughs>
0: I mean, obviously that you took a bit of time off to give yourself a bit of a break. Did you really miss the writing?
1: Yes, I did. So that's exactly what happened. I thought, I'm not sure what to do with myself then. I'm not really good at this. I'm not not the sort of person who could be, um, you know, some people would be good at being a, a, I don't know why I'm saying a diplomat's wife. I'm sure some diplomat's wives live very uh, wonderful, but a life where or just in a life of art where you're just going off to galleries and all that that sort of thing. I can't actually do that. I'm more task-oriented than I thought I was. I needed to, and I still had my deadline. It was just further down the track. There just wasn't enough in the day to...
0: Was it like your sense of purpose? I mean, obviously your purpose is so many things, but your own personal one, so not being a mother or a wife or Mm. whatever else... It's that thing that you do for you that brings you so much joy. I think so.
1: I think that is what I discovered, and you can easily fill your days as. A, oh, absolutely. As a mother with children with domestic yeah. duty, but that wasn't that was enough. It did feel like what What's the What's the point? And also, yeah, you know, I think I realized that when I first started writing my very first book that my feeling that I had at that time was a sense of relief because after all those years of wanting to write and not writing, I was finally writing. And so that's why I was always so grateful to my sister for giving me that push to do it. And the same thing happened in this year of joy that I, you know, faffed about for a few months and then thought, oh, it's a relief when I'm actually started writing from that writing prompt again. It feels like something's, I got something done yeah. each day. Yeah.
0: And I mean a lot of people talk about it not being work when it's something that you love. So it's it's not like you drop the kids off at school and then it's like, oh, I've gotta go sit and and at my mm. desk and write. It's like wow, this yeah. is this is what I love doing. I mean, how exciting and fun that I get to go sit and whatever happens, happens. Mm. Well, it's such a such a privilege, it really really is. Do you think if your book stopped doing well, that you would stop writing?
1: Mm, that's such an
0: interesting
1: question. I, if I stopped being published, I don't know what I what I would do. I don't think I'm, that's part of the process for me, that's part of the other side of the coin is having the, the readers and having the finished book at the end. I don't think I would just sit there and write for the Mm. the sake of writing. So I like the fact that I'm published. I wouldn't just write. I enjoyed having the extra time for this book. So normally I have a book out every two years. Um, this has been three years. Uh, I don't think I'd like to take 10 years to write a book. I think I would then really miss the, the having the readers at the other end. So if I had no publisher, I don't know. I don't mm. know what the answer for that is.
0: What book that you've written has brought you the most joy?
1: It would be actually a toss-up between Three Wishes because it was my first book and it was that incredible sense of relief, as I said, that I, I felt and it, it was a sense of exhilaration that I was actually doing it. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. There are a lot of writers who want to write and are too frightened to write, so that incredible sense of satisfaction that when you're finally doing it that so that was fantastic back then and then this most recent book because I did take that um take more time and something from that year of joy I I don't know what happened I just loved I just loved writing it
0: do you have a feeling that I mean I think it will do extremely well but do you have a feeling that apples never fall will do well
1: I don't. Uh, I don't know. Um, in a way, it's not. Uh, it feels different to me. But every book feels different. But in a way, it's also you know typical Leah Moriarty style. Yeah. Um, so some people will say there she is writing to her formula again. Whereas to me, I feel it's completely different. But it's funny. Then once I finish writing, I think, oh, I've done this again. I didn't mean to do that again. But. Because it's me, you come back to certain themes.
0: Um, but isn't that what's so amazing about that? It is you. I mean, I have a style when I interview people as well, and that's you're known for that. And that's mm. that's only you have that, and that's what makes it special. Yes.
1: That's right. And that's, you know, it's just part of that. It's, uh, as we were saying earlier, it's just that voice in your head. It's yeah. just somebody, it's a little line that I would have read somewhere saying she, there she is trotting out her formula again, <laughs> uh, whereas, of course, other people, and I know that myself from books I read, I, I you know, Anne Tyler is one of my favourite authors. And as soon as I'm in there, I recognise her style and her type of characters and it's. Uh, it's glorious. Mm, um,
0: that's what you love, yeah.
1: Yeah, so so you're right, should ignore <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that voice. Yes, I hope so.
0: <laughs> Do you ever, have you ever suffered writer's block?
1: Not so much. I, I always feel it's a mistake to, uh, to label it as writer's
0: block yeah. because would be What is that? You know, yeah, what exa- you're a writer. I mean, we all think it's just when someone sits there and nothing comes to their mind about what they should write. Is yeah. that what it is?
1: I don't know. It's just, so, <laughs> I think if you take it too seriously, then you could think I am suffering from yeah. writer's block. Um, so I would never call it writer's block. I'd just say I'm not having a good day mm. today and I just need to do all the things that, um, that I know will bring it back, which is either doing my egg timer, just write write for 30 minutes and and lose yourself or if that's not working, exercise is, uh, I always find works. um, Or you need to stop for a week. You need a week off or maybe you need a year off. Maybe you need a year of joy.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but no, so I don't, I'm going to say I don't believe in it.
0: You obviously have the egg timer, but is there anything that you do you, anything you say, like a ritual before you go down to ride every day? No, but
1: um, I I have thought about that a lot.
0: Um, you know, some people might say a prayer, not a religious one, but I know a lot of people I've spoken to who are authors ask. I mean, they're they're more spiritual, but for the divine to write through them and things like that, which are really beautiful.
1: Yes. Uh, it sounds beautiful, I, and I wish I did have something like that. I might be, I might, <laughs> I might create it for the next book. I've been yeah. um, listening when since I got into podcasts, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about meditation, yes. um, without actually doing a single moment of meditation, just learning about the process of it. So I like the idea of sitting there and maybe doing a little three minute yeah. meditation or something. But, um, the you know yeah or a mantra, but no, I've got. I've got nothing except for that program, the, the programming myself yes. and the egg
0: timer. What's the best advice that you've ever been given?
1: I remember reading Stephen King's book on writing where he was saying uh, he was a word counter. And I think he was advising to write 2,000 words a day uh, and I write, my rule is just 500 words a day. So I think just because, and because I'm not a planner, So, therefore, the temptation is always to go back and look over what you've written the day before. So, to say to myself, you must write 500 words a day. Mm. So, that's just one little thing, really, that I became a word counter. Often at the time, they feel very important. I think maybe not to hold on to anything too tightly, Mm. And I've written that down somewhere. I'm becoming. My mother and my grandmother always had these habits of writing little quotes
0: yeah. on little
1: bits of paper, and I'm turning into them. So it's ah. probably on my desk somewhere. But I do some, that
0: too with the notes in my
1: phone. <laughs> yes, I don't know where it is, but it's something like so. Whether it's something wonderful or something terrible, to try not to hold
0: on to yeah too anything that. too tightly. Oprah um, says that she says I you shouldn't. know believe it, know it, and then let it go. Never hold on too tight. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite book? If you think of all the books that you've ever read, is there one or two that really stand out that you just adore? Uh,
1: I would say The Accidental Tourist by Anne Tyler. So I do have, I'm not sure if you can see off screen, but my American editor did give me a signed first edition of um, The Accidental Tourist. Uh, and I would save that in a fire. And so that's a very special book to me also because I think it gave me permission to write about ordinary people. Mm-hmm. So I can remember reading it and there has got some siblings in it who are always getting lost whenever they go anywhere. They, they know they're going to get lost. And my sister and I, we're always getting lost. <laughs> and it was just a, a little revelation to me that something so ordinary that I could have written about yeah. that uh, and thinking to myself, so all, it's okay, you can write about really ordinary um, parts of life and it's a pleasure to read. So she she really inspired me to write about ordinary suburban
0: people. Well, I think the ordinary parts of life is what's so relatable because that's where 99% of your audience will, will would be, when they're yes, writing fine. it,
1: yes, that's that's the the case. Most of us are leading ordinary lives, yeah. and it's wonderful to read historical fiction, or and of course to read about people who are living lives completely different from ours. And we need all those sorts of stories, um, but I think yeah, we also need stories about mm. people who, who are like us.
0: It's funny you say that because uh, I'm Hamish and Andy's producer, and their comedy is ordinary. Relatable comedy and Tony Martin. I interviewed the other day, and he says it's about taking the ordinary and making it extremely funny, and that's yeah. what gets the most laughs because everyone can relate to it.
1: I know that is. It's, I can always remember Jamoan doing some little. He was doing something about um, teaspoons in the sink and how when you turn the tap on and you he was looking at it and thinking, "Oh, that's right. That always happens when the water." Yeah, and it was such a tiny little. That is the best the best comedy when you um, relate to it so much.
0: And it's interesting from an author's point of view as well because it makes so much sense. Mm. What is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn?
1: Oh, I don't think I've learned it yet. It it probably would have been that lesson that I was talking about earlier about that it's literally impossible to please everyone with my work. So I just have to keep saying that until I really believe it. And I believe it as I'm, as I'm saying it, but then when the next time I see something that's uh, criticism, uh, it, will, it will still upset me. But I think I am getting better.
0: At I'm that. sure you are. Up
1: quicker. Yeah. yeah.
0: What is a life of greatness to you? Just
1: having love in your life, having people who love you and who, who you love.
0: Leanne, thank you for all of the books that you have given us. You have brought so much joy to so many people. So thank you very much for the conversation today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. You've given me a lot to think about. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to saragrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.